The Healing Arts Program is not intended as a substitute for consultation with a licensed medical or mental health professional. The listener should regularly consult a physician or mental health professional in matters relating to his or her health, and particularly with respect to any symptoms that may require diagnosis or medical attention. This program provides content related to educational, medical, and psychological topics. As such, listening to the program implies your acceptance of this disclaimer. Hey, dear ones, it's Dr. Shelley. So I mentioned a while back that I started a new online school. Basically, my travel schedule, as you know, kind of got canceled this year, and so I converted a lot of my classes to the online format, and I have to tell you, this has been a complete joy and a complete blast. You can come on over and check the school out at healingarts.thinkific.com, and there you will find certification programs in Egyptian energy healing, my new Pythagorean healing series, and so much more with new courses being added all the time. And when you take one of my energy healing certification courses, you are invited to come on over to Zoom and join me personally for ongoing Zoom calls. And we have been having a complete blast. We've sent healing light out to people, out to animals, situations, the world, and everything in between. It's a great community, and I want you to join us. So check it out at healingarts.thinkific.com, and I'll look forward to welcoming you to a class very soon. Welcome to Healing Arts. I'm your host, Dr. Shelley Kerr. Hey, my dear friend, how's it going? I hope you're doing wonderfully. You know I'm keeping you in my thoughts and prayers always. And as promised, this is a bonus episode of the Healing Arts program. I dug up some celebrity interviews from my program Beyond Reality, which aired on a real radio station back in the early 2000s. And what is amazing is that you're going to find the audio not to be quite as clear as what we can do now. And so I want to give a super shout out to Anchor FM for being amazing And speaking of amazing, my guest on the program is Greg Braden, New York Times bestselling author. We're going to talk about prayer. We're going to talk about how to show up in the world. And I think this is an incredibly timely message that we all need to hear right now as we are moving through troubling times. So I hope you enjoy it. So have a blessed day and let's get started on this wonderful interview. Welcome to another edition of Beyond Reality on the New Talk Radio 570 KLIF. I'm Dr. Shelley, and today I am honored to be speaking to Greg Braden. 
New York Times bestselling author Greg Braden has been a featured guest for international conferences and media specials exploring the role of spirituality in technology. A former senior computer systems designer, geologist, and technical operations supervisor at Martin Marietta Aerospace, Phillips Petroleum and Cisco Systems, Braden is now considered a leading authority on bridging the wisdom of our past with the science, medicine, and peace of our future. His journeys into the remote mountain villages, monasteries, and temples of times past, coupled with his background in the hard sciences, uniquely qualify him to bring the benefit of long-lost traditions to the forefront of our lives today. From his groundbreaking book, Awakening to Zero Point, to his pioneering work in walking between the worlds and the controversy of the Isaiah effect, Greg Braden ventures beyond the traditional boundaries of science and spirituality, offering meaningful solutions to the challenges of our time. Captivating audiences of all ages, Braden's remarkable synthesis of science and spirituality is a tribute to the enduring qualities of our souls, while empowering us with a timely message of hope and possibility. The solitude of northern New Mexico's mountains and south Florida's coasts serve as home and inspiration to Greg and his family between their travels. Greg, welcome back to Beyond Reality. Well, Shelley, it is absolutely great to hear your voice, and it's a pleasure to be here today. Thank you. Thanks. I just wanted to mention um, I saw you last September when you were in Dallas for your program at Unity Church, and I thought it was absolutely mind-bending information. It was great. Well, thank you. It's good for me to hear that. It's a very full day. A tremendous amount of information is, is packed into uh, to that six-hour program. Right, and this information is going to be in your forthcoming book, I understand, and that's some of the things I wanted to um, talk to you about today. You, I, I want to quote something out of your new book where you say, for the first time in recorded human history, the fate of our entire species rests upon the choices of a single generation. Could you explain that? Mm, you know, even when I hear someone else read that, to me it sounds like such a very, very powerful statement. It is. And and I, I believe that for whatever reason, we're only recently beginning to grasp the magnitude of precisely what that statement means. For the first time in recorded human history, we have gained access to the fundamental forces of creation, to the powers of nature, mm-hmm. in ways that in the past uh, historically have been left to, uh, to fate and to what, what we call the powers of God. For the first time in recorded human history, we have the ability to tweak the, uh, the genetic information of, uh, of an unborn child uh, to enhance the, the chances of a specific kind of an IQ or hair color or, or eye color or physical, uh, physical stature. Uh, for the first time in the last 100 years, we've gained the ability to, to actually modify, to customize uh, our weather patterns. And this goes way beyond simply seeding the clouds to produce rain. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we know now is is that engineers have the ability to move high pressure systems and low pressure systems uh, across entire continents, creating uh, uh, kinds of weather patterns that, that, in some cases, we've never seen before. We know that we're now creating new forms of matter and even new forms of life that we've never had the opportunity to create before that our world has never seen. And the, the question that scientists and engineers are asking now that we have the ability to do these things, to actually access the powers of nature in the most fundamental ways, 
is it, is it right to do so? Do we have the right, just because we have the ability, is it right for us to, to make use of that ability in our world today? And what's so interesting about these choices is that this is the first generation where if we choose incorrectly, the consequences we cannot undo. In other words, a hundred years ago, if we made poor choices in the way we were growing our food or if, if we made poor choices in the way we, we engineered our industry, the next generation can compensate for that. Uh, and today, because we actually have access to the, the fundamental forces of creation, uh, we have the ability now that we could change the gene pool of an entire species to remedy a problem in one time and perhaps not know the consequences of that change 30 years down the road. Uh, for example, many scientists right now, this is actually something that's on the table being proposed in scientific circles right now, is what happens if, if we genetically shift the population of the United States, if we change their gene pool and make us all immune to the anthrax virus, it's possible to do that. If we do that today in response to a threat in the near term, what does it mean to our bodies 30, 40, 50 years from now? Does it impair our ability to, uh, to develop an immune response to some other challenge that we haven't even seen yet? Uh, and we don't know the answers to these questions. And, and for these reasons, what many researchers, scientists, uh, uh, engineers, thinkers, philosophers, religious uh, leaders are all saying essentially the same thing, is that we now are being faced with the challenges as well as the choices for the first time in recorded human history, uh, and the fate of our entire species rests in the balance of those choices. Right, and you mentioned Carl Sagan had predicted some of these things before mm -hmm. his death. Well, you know, what a brilliant man, Carl Sagan. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm just so in honor or in awe of, of his brilliance and also honor him as, as a scientist and a researcher and also as, as a humanitarian. Uh, Sagan was very global uh, in his thinking. And rather than looking at simply one aspect of our, our human populations or uh, you know one continent or one species, he was asking really big questions. Uh, for example, he, he was asking whether or not it's possible that perhaps somewhere in the universe, other civilizations have gone through the same process of discovering how to access these fundamental forces of nature on the one hand, uh, and on the other hand, uh, having learned to survive uh, that process, survive the learning curve of finding out what works and, and what doesn't work. Sagan called uh, the process that he believed that we were living uh, before his death. He died, I believe, in 1996. Mm -hmm. uh, and before, before his death, he he actually coined a term for the process that we're living now. He called it technological adolescence. And his question was as to whether or not it's possible that other civilizations and other parts of the universe perhaps uh, could have undergone uh, a similar technological adolescence. And if they did, we should see evidence of those civilizations somewhere uh, if, if they learn to communicate with radio signals the way that we do and broadcast television images, we should be picking those things up. Right. And, and the fact that we're not led Sagan to one of two conclusions. First, he, he suggested, number one, either we're among the first civilizations anywhere in the universe to reach this level of sophistication. Uh, and recent archaeological evidence now makes that pretty unlikely. 
there, there's a very good body of evidence, and we can discuss this, that there have been other civilizations that perhaps have reached where we are or even further. Uh, and that makes the second possibility even more frightening, because what Sagan said is if we're not the first, then in all probability other civilizations, either in our own world or in other worlds, have gone through this period of technological adolescence. And the reason we don't see them is because they didn't survive. They destroyed themselves in the process. Right. He's, a he's asking the question, are we making the same mistakes today that either we have made on Earth in time so distant we've forgotten about it or that other civilizations have made uh, throughout the universe and, uh, and did not survive as well? I assume you're referring to... Atlantis and Lemuria and such civilizations as those. Well, actually, uh, uh, and I didn't even know we were going to talk about this today, and I'm happy. I didn't either. I'm happy that we are. <laughs> and this is uh, this is some of the information uh, that we're sharing from uh, research that was done in the new book. It may or may not all be included in the book. We're we're not sure right now. Oh, good. We love the first scoop but, on information. Uh, well, there archaeologically, Shelley, there are some what are considered anomalous findings that have come to light uh, since 1992. Uh, suggesting that, in fact, we may not be the first civilization on Earth to have attained nuclear capabilities in terms of, of weapons. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is a, a very frightening prospect because the civilizations now that are being rediscovered, uh, in fact, destroyed themselves. One of the places where we begin to find this, I mean, the, the implications are so frightening that most people like to think that ancient records of, uh, of vast battles and wars between civilizations that destroyed themselves are metaphors. They like to think that they're fairy tales and they're, they're metaphors for the powers and the forces of good and evil and light and dark. One of the best known uh, records of a, of a great battle that was fought uh, uh, in a time between eight and 12,000 years ago is known as the Epic of India, the Mahabharata, uh, it's also known as the uh, the Bible of the, the Hindu traditions. It is an epic poem that is over 100,000 verses long. Uh, it's the, the greatest epic known to, to humankind. And a, a portion of this poem describes a battle that was fought on the plains of northern India. Uh, mm -hmm. And it was a battle between two great civilizations uh, that essentially destroyed one another when one of the, the forces found that they were losing. They brought in a weapon that had never been used before. And the Mahabharata describes this weapon very clearly, and it says, when the weapon was detonated, elephants walking on the earth burst into flames, and rivers began to boil. Uh, birds fell from the sky. Um, and that people on the ground, those that, that survived uh, the, initial, uh, the initial use of the weapon, their hair began to, to fall out, and their fingernails fell out. And uh, these all sound very similar to conditions that we've seen from populations close to, to nuclear detonations in, in recent times. But it wasn't until 1992 when archaeologists were excavating in northern India, in the plains of northern India, just where the, the epic poem suggests that this great battle occurred. And uh, they were excavating to build uh, uh, housing, uh, housing projects. Um, for, uh, for poverty-stricken families in northern India, and they actually excavated down into the earth and found a layer of uh, radioactive ash 
that should not be there. Mm. And they began to, to take core samples to find out how widespread this layer of ash actually was. And they found it covered an area of about four square miles, which is, uh, is a huge area. There were no craters suggesting that there had been a, a meteor or an asteroid impact. And they began to excavate. They brought in Russian scientists, and they began excavating and actually found the remains of a very ancient city, now dated at between eight and 12,000 years before our time, long before we were supposed to be seeing uh, very sophisticated cities that were there. And among some of the ruins in the cities, I'll make a long story very brief, what they began to find were human skeletons that even today, this is between 1992 and 1996, are still 50 times more radioactive than they should be uh, just from background radiation from, from the sun. And although none of these are conclusive, they all support what this ancient epic poem says. Uh, and it, it's among a growing body of evidence suggesting that we may, in fact, today be on a path that we have, have traveled before, learning to come to terms with the fundamental forces of nature. Uh, in the past, it appears that great civilizations uh, utterly destroyed themselves in their learning curve, and the hope is that we can learn from those and not make the same mistakes today. I'm talking to Greg Braden. We'll be right back to Beyond Reality on the New Talk Radio 570 KLIF. Welcome back. We're talking to Greg Braden, international best-selling author of The Isaiah Effect. Many of the ancient uh, seers, visionaries, prophets have written about their, their views of, uh, of great battles that happened in the past. And this particular battle was actually between the, the Raman uh, civilization of northern India, the, the powerful Raman uh, tribes, and uh, a tribe that was closely associated with both Atlantis and, and Egypt. Uh, and it's interesting because we see images on temple walls in Egypt, and you say, well, those are just paintings. And we read descriptions in epic poems, such as the Mahabharata, and you say, mm -hmm. you know, that could have been someone's interpretation of what happened. And then when we find the archaeological evidence that actually supports these things, uh, at the very least, we've got to say there's a correlation here, and, and it certainly warrants uh, a closer examination. You know, and it's not the first time that what we've always thought was a myth or uh, uh, a cultural uh, you know, a story that's been preserved and handed down through generations uh, in oral tradition has actually been found to have a factual basis. And we've seen this many times. This is how the city of Troy was discovered by uh, Heinrich Schliemann, for example, in the late 1800s. Uh, he took the epi epic uh, poem of the Iliad, uh, Homer's poem of the Iliad, and took it as a factual account, retraced the footsteps of where the armies went, began to dig, uh, in that place, and nine layers of cities down uh, into the earth, he actually found uh, the ruins uh, of what was at one time the city of Troy that everyone had believed was a myth at one time. 
Yes, I, I had an opportunity to visit that place. It was very, very interesting. Well, I've never been there before. I imagine it, it's an amazing thing to see. It, it's interesting, that whole area of Turkey over there, they have um, the House of the Virgin Mary very nearby there in Ephesus. Sure, sure. And uh, I'm, I'll ask you about this now that we're on this subject. I went to Ephesus, and I know that they have documented evidence that says that Mary did move through that area. But my question is, I don't really believe when I was there that, that she lived in this exact house. Right. Right? But, it's, but when you walked into the place, the spiritual power, and I know you take people on tours of sacred sites all over the world, so you know what I'm talking about, that the spiritual presence and power of this place was overwhelming. And I think it's because of all of the people who came to worship there. You know? uh, I've never never been to that particular location, and, and I've experienced something very similar uh, when we go into Egypt, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, on the, uh, on, it's actually the Asian side of Egypt, on the other side of uh, the Suez Canal, on the east side, mm -hmm. uh, in the mountains of Egypt, uh, what is now Mount Sinai, and the, uh, the monastery of Mount Sinai. Uh, and the, the monks say that they uh, retrace the footsteps of Moses. Uh, to wow. a particular point on the top of of Mount Sinai, and it's it's been retraced, uh, you know, for over two thousand years now. And they say this is this is the exact place where Moses received the law. So when we take groups and we climb that part of the mountain, I you know I ask myself a question very similar to yours: How do we know precisely? You know, is this precisely the location where Moses stood and received this law, uh, or is it in this general area? Regardless of whether or not it's the, the exact location or not, there is an energy that's there. Mm -hmm. and you can feel it, and uh, and it may be from all the people over the centuries that have have made the pilgrimage to precisely that location. But the you know the key for the, the first question, the first sentence that you asked me was that we now have this this uh, uh, the opportunity. We're making choices right now, and the fate of our entire species rests upon the choices of this generation. Mm -hmm. This now uh, appears to be the first time in a very long time when we have the ability to actually engineer the forces of nature, or what in the past have been called the, the, the power of God, uh, in terms of life and matter. And, and what we do with those choices is the subject of tremendous controversy, and, and quite literally, uh, because of the political implications, the implications of warfare, uh, the biological implications, we are making choices now that are uh, determining the fate of, of our entire species. And I think the, the value of going back and looking at history, uh, in addition to it simply being fascinating, mm -hmm. is, is asking the question, have we been down this path before? And if we did, can we learn from the mistakes that have been made before? Uh, and I think that's what Carl Sagan was referring to as well, either either intergalactically or uh, right in our own backyard. You know, have, have we attained the, the power to actually engineer the forces of creation in our past? And if we did, uh, how come we don't know about that? And what does it mean to us today? Right. How will we avoid that in the future, in your opinion? Well, I, I believe we are we're learning this process now. I, I think uh, when we do these seminars all over the world, this is the 16th year now that I've offered programs in, in one form or another, and we've covered a lot of ground mm -hmm. in those 16 years. And one of the things in, since se September uh, 11th, 2001, people have asked me uh, in countries throughout Europe 
and Australia and South America and all all through the states what I believe is right and wrong. You know, what's the right thing to do with the power and the technology that we have today? And I have to tell you very honestly, Shelley, from my perspective, I think we, the day that we chose to detonate a nuclear device on a major population center that uh, that brought World War II to a close, I'm not saying it was that that was an, uh, a right, wrong, good, or bad thing to do. I, I don't know the answer to that. But I sense mm-hmm. that the day that, that happened, we crossed that boundary of right and wrong. Yes. And we're uh, very much in uncharted territory right now. And I think all we can do is take it one step at a time. Uh, and we we must find a principle. There must be a guiding principle by which we, a standard, by which we gauge our actions and our choices uh, as we as we make each step along the way in this technological adolescence that Carl Sagan w- was talking about. And for me, I think that, that that yardstick has to be the honoring of the principle of life. I think if we as a species can find a way to to honor uh, and the and respect the value and the principle of life, I don't see how we could ever go wrong in any choice that we make. Uh, and I think that scientists, engineers, and lay people alike are still struggling uh, to come to terms with exactly what that yardstick would look like. Right. So I, I had no idea we would talk about all this today, and it's, uh, <laughs> it's an interesting. <laughs> well, that's part of the surprise, I guess. <laughs> way to begin the program, sure. I'm talking to Greg Braden. We'll be right back to Beyond Reality on the New Talk Radio 570 KLIF. Thank you for listening to Season 1 of The Healing Art Show. Coming up in Season 2, we're going to take guided journeys together. We will have an entire season filled with guided journeys that are taken straight from the pages of my books. The things that I believe you will find most helpful on your healing journey. And with that... I will look forward to welcoming you to another episode of Healing Arts. Welcome back. We're talking to Greg Braden, international best-selling author of The Isaiah Effect. You know, throughout your work, you've talked about the power of prayer and being that which we would like to see in the world. And as we're on the verge, it looks like potentially for another war to begin or not, depending on our reaction to our outer world. Um, Can we pray the world into peace? Well, uh, the answer is is yes and no. And and I can say that from a a quantum perspective, uh, and as well as from the perspective of of some of the most ancient traditions uh, recorded uh, in our most cherished traditions uh, by those who have come before us. The ancient Essenes, for example, are wisdom holders uh, and are believed by many to be the authors of the Dead Sea Scrolls and, and many of the, the, the very cherished traditions at the basis of both Hebrew and, and Christian religions. The Essenes, in their eloquence, made a statement that, uh, that I certainly cannot improve upon, so I'm going to use their statement to describe our relationship to the world. 
around us. And what the Essenes said is that the world around us is no more and no less than a mirror of what we have become from within, what we've become in our hearts. Now, to a, a technological society, that sounds very simplistic. Uh, and it did. It didn't make a lot of sense to scientists up until about 1993, between 1993 and 1995. And it was during that time when quantum physicists began to bear out under laboratory conditions the principles, the, the precise principles that the Essenes had recorded in their text over 2,500 years ago. What quantum physicists began to find was that what we, what we have become, our expectations, our beliefs, our thoughts, feelings, and emotions, the bias that we carry in our hearts is actually a, a field of force that extends beyond our bodies and has a direct effect on the world around us. Uh, and this effect now is so well known uh, that research is, is being done to statistically document how great this effect actually is uh, in large population centers, cities uh, with you know over a million people. But the bottom line is that something that we do in our lives day in and day out, the way we choose to conduct ourselves in the presence of one another, our code of conduct, uh, actually has a direct effect in the world around us. And through that effect, we know that bodies are healed and that peace happens between nations uh, and through that effect, uh, just the opposite uh, occurs. We know that uh, uh, that all of the opposite of uh, of the peace and the healing of our bodies can occur depending on the quality of thought, feeling, and emotion that people hold in their bodies. And the ancients, specifically the Essenes, documented this relationship as a lost modality of, of prayer. And they said, beyond any words that we speak with our mouths or any any motions, any outward motions that we may show, that simply by holding the feeling in our hearts of the things that we'd like to see happen in our world, that is a, a form of prayer. So they invite us to feel the feeling uh, as if the prayer's already been answered, to feel the feeling of peace in our world, to feel the feeling of the healing in, in our bodies and the bodies of our, our loved ones. And by doing that, by us holding those feelings, we are actually creating effects on the quantum level that bring those things to bear and allow them to, to uh, come to pass in our world. So the answer is, as we learn, not if, because it's already happening, so as we learn to come to terms with that power, a power that the ancients said was, was the greatest power in creation, this power of emotion in our bodies, we collectively determined uh, the peace of our world and uh, the degree of suffering that happens in our, our global family. And uh, and I think as part of our technological adolescence, we're learning about that right now. Yeah, this reminds me of a story. I went to see Carolyn Mace recently. She tells a story about a woman who had had a near-death experience. She was in a car accident. And when she rose up out of her body, she could hear the thoughts of all the cars behind her, like, oh, geez, now I'm stuck in traffic. And there was one car, five cars back or whatever, and, and the woman was saying a prayer for her. And she said she saw it like a rainbow beam of light that went down into the car. And as soon as she saw it, it snapped her back into her body and she was saved. Uh, Isn't that from, wild? From a single prayer. From a single prayer. Well, you know, I'm, I'm, while I'm not surprised when I hear stories like that, I'm always in awe because this is such, uh, such an empowering 
way of, of living our lives. At the same time, so many people say, why don't we know about it? You know, right. If, if truly human emotions can be used as a form of prayer, and that prayer has the kind of power that we're talking about, why don't we know more about that today? The answer is we apparently, as a, uh, as a species, we understood these principles much better in the past than we do today up until uh, about 1,700 years ago. And in the, in the Western traditions, in the traditions of, uh, of Hebrew and, and Christian traditions, uh, many of the texts that have always held the instructions describing how we use this prayer and keeping this mode of prayer alive in our world, those texts were actually edited uh, out of the mainstream literature. They were taken away from the masses. Mm-hmm. And maybe in the first generation or so, it didn't make that much difference. And after uh, 1,500, 1,700 years, pretty soon, uh, we began to outwardly uh, forget the power of how to apply this prayer in our lives, although the sense that such a power is possible, I think, has always been with us. People have always felt that, that this possibility is there, and they have so longed to, to have this in our lives that, and that everyone has done the best that they know how to do. Right. And when we talk about prayer, I have to, I have to just acknowledge that any time we talk about prayer, I know it's very deep, it's very personal, uh, because the word prayer means something different to every human that walks this earth. Everyone has a different experience of prayer. And the first thing I, I feel it's important to say about that is that there are no incorrect prayers, no incorrect ways of praying. And, and any prayer, well-intentioned prayer, I think has its use, uh, its place, uh, and it works to some degree. Having said that, in my studies of ancient traditions uh, and living traditions today of the indigenous peoples in the, in the mountains of the Andes, in the uh, uh, monasteries of, of China and Tibet, uh, and throughout this country, the, the Native uh, Americans of the southwestern part of the United States, they have always used a mode of prayer that just isn't recognized in Western traditions. Mm-hmm. And it is this mode. It's a mode of prayer rather than asking that something come to pass. So rather than saying, dear God, please let there be peace in this world, they would have the feeling as if the prayer has already been answered and give thanks of gratitude and appreciation for the peace that already exists in this world. And what quantum physicists now are showing to us through the models uh, and the the equations and the, the experiments that are happening under laboratory conditions is that this subtle difference in the way that we hold emotion in our bodies makes all the difference in the world in terms of of what happens uh, on the quantum level. When we say, please let there be peace in the world, in effect, we are implying that peace does not exist in the moment. Right. When When we give thanks for the peace, that is already there, what we do is we open the door for greater amounts of that peace. We're acknowledging that that peace is already there. We open the door for for more of that peace to come to bear upon our world. And there are very sound uh, technical reasons uh, in the world of physics and and quantum science to explain precisely why this works. The ancients apparently didn't need to know why, uh, nor the indigenous peoples today. They They don't try to to understand why this works, they accept 
these relationships and they apply them in their lives, uh, creating what, what look to us like miracles, miracles of healing, uh, miracles of changing weather patterns, you know, to bring rain, um, uh, bringing uh, um, food, uh, you know, good hunting in, in the mountains of northern New Mexico and southern Colorado by communing with the forces of nature uh, through their hearts. And, uh, and I think this is a power as a species, as we come to terms with this power, this will determine the answer to your question uh, about the peace in our world or uh, as we appear to be teetering on, on the brink of, of a global conflict. I'm talking to Greg Braden. We'll be right back to Beyond Reality on the New Talk Radio 570 KLIF. Hey, my friend, it's Dr. Shelley. I hope you're doing wonderfully. I told you in an earlier episode that I have started a new online school, and it has been a complete joy. So come on over and check out my new school at healingarts.thinkific.com. In my school, you can get certified in different energy healing modalities, including Egyptian energy healing, which is featured in my book, Edgar Cayce's Egyptian Energy Healing, my new Pythagorean healing series, and so much more. Practitioners are getting together on Zoom on the weekend, and we are sending healing, love, and light to all kinds of people, situations, animals, and everything else that needs our attention and love. And when you get certified, you'll be invited to join us on Zoom or study at your leisure or both. So check it out at healingarts.thinkific.com and I'll look forward to welcoming you to a class very soon. Welcome back. We're talking to Greg Braden, international best-selling author of The Isaiah Effect. Now, I need to switch gears here because I have a friend who wants me to ask you a question. Okay, well, we, and covered, we covered a lot of ground in a short period of time. And we're going to continue to good cover time, good more ground. Years. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, when you were here in September, you showed some experiments, and you said that these experiments that have been done are going to change the face of the way we look at at our reality and one of them was the vacuum sure okay and you talked about the vacuum has all these and you know you explained it better than i do but it has all these little um, atoms just buzzing around in this disorderly fashion but that as soon as dna is introduced into it then it becomes ordered and so my my question is so if you could collect, and I think you mentioned that if we could get just a small, like one-tenth of one percent of the population sure. to pray peace and, and be peace, then we could actually affect the whole world based on this vacuum experiment. So the question is, if we could somehow collect DNA from the 8,000 people necessary, could we put it in some giant vacuum and then somehow spread that around the world and change the world? Well, you just asked four questions in that, in that one question. I know, but I promised I'd get it out. Well, let me, uh, so the answer is yes, possibly, perhaps, and uh, maybe. And no one remembers what I asked. No. Let me, what I'd like to do is, actually, it's not shifting gears at all. It's, okay, no, uh, I know. It, it ties in perfectly in, uh, from a different perspective to right. what we were just speaking about. So 
for listeners that, that were not the program may not be familiar with, with the experiment, it's described in the book in more detail, in the book The Isaiah Effect, which is, is talking about this lost mode of prayer uh, that is found in, uh, in the great Isaiah scroll, one of the, the most complete of the Dead Sea Scrolls. The experiment that your friend is referring to was actually, uh, it was performed by a Russian physicist uh, on loan to the U.S. He began the experiments uh, in Russia, Russia's uh, Moscow Academy of Sciences, and completed them here in the States. His name was Vladimir Popanin. And what he did was he, in a vacuum, what he did uh, was he, well, first of all, when we create what we call a vacuum, it implies an emptiness. And what we know is that even in a vacuum, something still exists. Right. And what, what it is that exists are little particles of light called photons. Uh, and the reason that's important is because they are packets of energy very similar to the stuff uh, at at the fundamental level that our world is made out of. Our, may, our world is made out of little packets of, of energy, little packets of light vibrating at d- different, uh, different frequencies, different rates of vibration. Well, what Popanin did was he introduced human DNA into the vacuum, and what he found was that the physical molecule of DNA has a direct effect on these little packets of light. And the reason that that's important in other words, they they became very ordered. They were scattered. They were random before the DNA was introduced. And when mm-hmm. the DNA was introduced, they became ordered. This is the first time that I'm aware of under laboratory conditions when physical DNA of a human has been documented as having a direct effect on the stuff our world is made out of. And that's why that experiment's important. So what, what it's showing is that within each of us, Every human, the, the average human, whatever average means, is said to, to contain about 100 trillion cells in, in a human body. And every one of those cells has DNA. That DNA, in, under laboratory conditions, has a direct effect on the stuff our world is made out of. Now, the other experiments were showing that when we change the way we feel in our bodies, we change the way the DNA is shaped and the way that that DNA affects our world. And the purpose of showing those experiments was that we embody a technology. When we change the way we feel, we're having a direct effect on the stuff our world is made of through our DNA. Now, statistically, uh, a lot of research has been done beginning back in the early, mid-1970s to determine if these principles, in fact, work outside of the laboratory. So in cities, uh, 25 Western cities with populations over 100,000 people, they brought individuals together. They taught them how to to have specific qualities of feeling in their bodies and to hold those feelings, you know, for, for maybe an hour at a time or whatever the window of time was. And what the research found, and this is all, it's, again, it's documented in the books, it's documented in our, on the website as well and in the programs, what the researchers found was that when a certain number of people could have that kind of feeling, a feeling of peace, for example, uh, in a large population center, during the time they were having that feeling, traffic accidents dropped to zero and emergency hospital room visits declined. Uh, one of the cities that was where the studies happened was Chicago, where the Chicago uh, stock market is, the, the Chicago Exchange. And the stock market soared in a positive direction wow. during the time that, that this was happening. 
they took the research then in the early 1980s when the Israeli war uh, was raging with uh, between Israel and Lebanon, and they did the same the same experiments under very controlled conditions. And what they found was that when people were feeling the feelings of what today we would call peace or non-judgment, uh, there are a number of different ways, you know, we can we can describe these feelings in a number of different ways. When they were feeling those feelings, terrorist activities dropped to zero during the Lebanese war, and the same thing happened. The crimes, violent crimes against people declined, and um, traffic accidents, emergency hospital room visits declined. And when the people stopped what they were doing, all of those statistics reversed. Uh, and this is very well documented in a journal called the Journal of Conflict Resolution. And the question that comes to mind is if we know these things work, why aren't we using them today? Right. And and my my answer to that is I simply uh, do not have an answer to that. I, I see no good reason why we're not applying these principles today. When I talk to the researchers, Shelley, this, this information is so well documented that statistically researchers know precisely how many people it takes within a given population for these effects to begin. So in other words, whether you're in a, a community that has 100 people or you're in a city that has a million people or you're on an earth that has 6 billion people, they know statistically how many people. And, and it's, the number is the square root of 1% of the given population. So what that number means, it's, it's actually a very small number. If you take the square root of 1% of a city with 1 million people, that is that number is 100 people. It means that when 100 people in a city of 1 million can hold this quality of emotion, what is now recognized as a mode of prayer, that the entire city benefits from that. And globally, it says that when as few as 8,000 people, the square root of 1%, of 6 billion people in our world is only 8,000 people. Wow. So when as few as 8,000 people are capable of doing this, we see changes on a global level, and this has been documented. We've, we've seen it happen. We've seen peace treaties signed, and we've seen warplanes in midair turn around and go back to their bases. When 84 nations participated in global prayers of peace, several hundred thousand people, because it creates a field on the quantum level, and all that can happen in a field of peace is peace. And then when people stop the prayer, everything, of course, reverses. So the, the point is, why stop the prayer? Why not exactly. feel those feelings all the time? And that's the, the whole thrust of our work. That's the thrust of what I think the ancients were trying to say to us in the language of their time. It's in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, and it's in some of our most cherished traditions. So that's that's a long answer to your short question. That's a great answer. <laughs> and unfortunately, I could ask more and more, but we're out of time. So I just want to thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, Shelley, I want to say thank you and congratulations on your new program format. And I'm just honored to, to be on your program. And uh, I want to thank you for being such a gracious host and, uh, okay. uh, and asking all the good questions tonight. Well, we uh, appreciate you. We wish you continued success. And you can visit Greg on the web at www.gregbraden.net. That's G-R-E-G-G-B-R-A-D-E-N.net.
What an amazing message of hope. I don't know about you, but I feel like I really needed to hear that today. When we can be the change that we want to see in the world around us, then everything has to change and improve. And so I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Healing Arts, and I'm so looking forward to continuing our friendship as we move forward with season two of Healing Arts. Have a blessed day and please take care of you. Namaste. Thank you for listening to season one of the Healing Arts Show. Coming up in season two, we're going to take guided journeys together. We will have an entire season filled with guided journeys that are taken straight from the pages of my books. The things that I believe you will find most helpful on your healing journey. And with that, I will look forward to welcoming you to another episode of Healing Arts.